Hello, and welcome to 1867 and All That, the interview episodes. Uh, today, we're trying out a new feature uh, for the podcast, an episode where I interview another historian to explore, you know, in a deeper fashion, one of the stories or personalities from mid-19th century Canadian history that I'm, that I'm really interested in. Uh, the show will, of course, be somewhat different than normal. There's no preset script that I, I, I'll, I'll provide for you. It's Instead, it's uh, a lot less of me speaking, for good or ill, you decide. Uh, amongst other reasons for doing this kind of thing is, is it, it allows me to a chance to highlight some of the, the work of some of the historians I admire uh, and whose works I've relied on when writing the episodes uh, for the show. So I'm delighted to bring you the first of these interviews today with University of Toronto professor David Wilson. Uh, David Wilson is one of the foremost historians of the Irish uh, in Canada today. You might know him from his uh, magnificent, award-winning two-volume biography of uh, the man I like to call friend of the show, Thomas Darcy McGee. Uh, and yes, I absolutely poured over uh, Wilson's, uh, the second volume, especially of Wilson's two-volume biography when, when preparing for this past season. But that two-volume biography represents just two uh, of at least uh, 12 books that I counted that Wilson has, has written and published. Aside from being a professor at the University of Toronto, he's also now the general editor of the Dictionary of Canadian Biography. For my money, the most important historical project in Canada today. The DCB, as I call it, is, is now fully and freely available online. Uh, and whenever I write an episode of this podcast, I always have you know, multiple tabs on my computer screen open with different uh, DCB entries. That's just a great resource. And the stewardship of this long-running project is now in the hands of David Wilson. Uh, it is in, as far as I can tell, excellent hands. So David Wilson, welcome to 1867 and all that. Thanks very much. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, well, we're here. Uh, I'm delighted that you're here as well. We're here really to talk especially about your, uh, your recently published book, Canadian Spy Story, Irish Revolutionaries and the Secret Police, out this year from McGill-Queens University Press. Um, it's, it's about a topic that we've talked a lot about in this past season of the podcast, The Rise of the Fenians, and it's also about a topic which I, I couldn't talk as much about, so I'm delighted to have you here, which is the, 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 the rise of the, the Canadian secret police and their attempts to thwart the, the Fenian actions. Uh, I, I think I've, I've, I know I've told you before, I love this book. I love its, its attention to historical detail and precision, and also the love of you know, a, good, a good story, and I love the, the, both of those things. Well, thanks. Um, and yes, I, I think um, precision is really important. And um, one of the things that uh, really helped me uh, write this book was indeed my involvement with the Dictionary of Canadian Biography, uh, because there is a rigorous attention to detail uh, in the dictionary. You know, you have to be able to pin down everything. You have to be able to provide evidence for every phrase, every word, basically. Um, and uh, so when I was writing the book, I felt that I had the uh, editors of the Dictionary of Canadian Biography breathing down my neck, uh, making sure that I was being as accurate as possible. But at the same time, um, and, and the dictionary tries to do this as well, at the same time, uh, we need to be big frame thinkers. Uh, and I think, I think uh, the historian uh, needs not only an attention to detail, not only to be a pedant, if you like, but also uh, to be a big frame thinker, to look at the broader issues, uh, to move away from the minutiae, uh, to ask oneself, what is the broader meaning of all this? What's going on and why, if at all, is it significant? 
Yeah, it's a hard thing to do. I, I get think I think one gets better at it. The, the older and more experienced you get, the, the more confident you're able to, to step back. And I, I, I like that about about your work. Um, I, now, I when I was preparing for this uh, this interview here, obviously we, we know each other a little bit, but I I looked at your University of Toronto uh, web page, you know, that says who David Wilson is, and I was I was struck by how, you know, what a unique story it tells. It's not. The, the biography that, that you've put on there is not the story of, of a historian who, you know, uh, did an undergraduate degree, did a master's, did a PhD, and, and, and went into the university. Um, I want, wondered if before we get into talking about your book, you could talk a little bit about your, your unique history uh, of how you came to be this, you know, historian of, of, of an Irish historian and also a historian of Irish Canada. And, of course, as a way of talking about how you came to write this book in particular. Yeah, my unique history was thrust upon me. Uh, it wasn't altogether chosen. Uh, I, I would at one level have been quite happy to have done my bachelor's, master's and PhD and then had a teaching job afterwards. Uh, but that wasn't uh, the world um, into which I came. Uh, so, um, you know, I started off at the University of York in England and, uh, and specialized actually in uh, at the age of the Atlantic Revolution. Uh, with particular reference to transatlantic radicalism, uh, English radicals in the United States, and uh, and then went on to Queens, uh, Queens Kingston, uh, to do my uh, my graduate work, my masters and my doctors, and uh, continued with that with that Anglo-American uh, transatlantic radical theme, um, and then I was on the sessional circuit, and so you're a bit like uh, a journeyman artisan, uh, uh, sort of on the tramp, uh, looking for a, a permanent position. And I taught all over the place, uh, one year here, two years there, one year somewhere else. And uh, it was getting uh, very frustrating and actually demoralizing as well, in truth. Mm -hmm. So uh, I decided to, to kick the door behind me, uh, so to speak, and went to Ireland. Now, we're, we're in the mid 80s now, uh, and I went to Ireland uh, to become a freelance journalist uh, and to report on the troubles. And um, in the course of that, uh, I became increasingly interested in radio documentaries and started to uh, do freelance work for CBC Ideas. And I absolutely loved that. It was a, a fantastic experience uh, and, and an addictive one as well, uh, because you had complete control over the material, uh, which you wouldn't get on television. You had complete editorial control. You were able to shape programs very much in the way that you wanted to. And, um, uh, and I also learned a lot from that, uh, Chris. I learned, I learned yeah. a lot about, about the importance of narrative. I tried an analytical program on CBC Ideas, and as the executive producer, Bernie Looked, pointed out very tactfully, it didn't work. What actually works is embedding ideas in a narrative, embedding analysis in a narrative. In some ways, it's a bit constricting. It's more limiting than writing a book where you can, in theory, at any rate, do pretty much whatever you want as far as the form is concerned. But um, I, I like that genre of uh, embedding analysis in narrative and learned a lot through my radio work. Uh, then I got uh, a position at the U of T, another sessional position, because I, I needed the money and I was, I, I love teaching. I mean, I absolutely love teaching and love research and writing. I just hadn't been in a position where I could do it. And, uh, and so at the U of T, uh, I, I uh, 
was in a three-year sessional when that ended the Celtic Studies program threw me a lifeline and um, and I, I incorporated my teaching in Celtic Studies into my transatlantic research only now I looked at Irish radicals in North America uh, United Irishmen in the United States this was one of the books that I wrote from that period and um, and round about 2000, uh, having worked in that area, I became increasingly interested in the Canadian dimension, the Irish in Canada, and, um, and in particular, uh, Thomas Darcy McGee. Now, um, when I first came to Canada and I went to a conference and heard this name mentioned, I had no idea who the man was. Um, and... I started to read about him uh, in 2000. I've been in Canada for a long time by this time. And um, actually, I had second thoughts about embarking on the project because the books that were written about McGee didn't really appeal that much to me. And I, I found myself not actually being all that engaged with the individual. But mm. when I started to read McGee himself, um, I, was, I was in. Uh, straight away, I was absolutely fascinated by his career, and um, and it's out of my work on Thomas Darcy McGee that my most recent book emerged, uh, because in the course of working on McGee, uh, it became clear to me, as it hadn't been before, that there's a very significant Fenian Irish revolutionary underground in Canada, and. This was something I wanted to pursue uh, because Athenians had always been portrayed in terms of an external threat. And the way historians had approached the Fenian Brotherhood in Canada was predominantly addressing the question of whether or not the Fenian invasions contributed to Canadian Confederation. And if it wasn't that, it was an actual sort of military study of the Battle of Ridgeway or the Battle of Eccles Hill in 1870. And those weren't things that particularly interested me, uh, although they're in the book. Um, but what really interested me was how you operated um, uh, as an Irish revolutionary, uh, where you had to operate underground. And then from that, the, one of the main sources on the Fenian underground in Canada were the secret police reports that are in the John A. Macdonald papers. And so I thought, yes, you can read these secret police reports against the grain, so to speak, to get a sense of what the underground was like. But you could also read these secret police reports with the grain so that you could understand the emergence um, and activities of Canada's first secret police force, which then takes you into the question of the relationship between state security and civil liberty. So those are the themes that embrace a Canadian spy story. Yeah, yeah, both of those things are there. I mean, there's so much of what you in what you just said. I could go in a, in a bunch of different directions about the, the embedding the ideas and an and analysis and a narrative how that keeps you honest. Um, but I, I where I want to go now is the the opening of Kane's spy story because you begin with uh, a man named Charles Clark, who all, of course also went by a number of other aliases. And I, I wonder if you could explain uh, to us a little bit more about why you start the book with the story of Charles Clark. Yes, you've kind of given the game away there uh, because the story starts with Cornelius O'Sullivan. <laughs> so all right. Cornelius O'Sullivan 
um, presents himself as a cattle dealer from Missouri. Um, the book begins with him meeting the president of the Fenian Brotherhood's pro-invasion wing, William Roberts, in New York City in the summer of 1867. So this is a year after the Fenian raids in, at Ridgeway and uh, Pigeon Hill as well in Quebec. And it, it traces the activities of Cornelius O'Sullivan, um, how he meets all the leading figures in the Fenian Brotherhood. He's great company. He goes out drinking with them. Uh, they go out to see the biggest show in New York, the one that's taken North, American by, North America by storm. It's called the Black Rogue. Sorry, the Black Crook. That's the name of it. Um, and it's attracting mega audiences. And he goes there to see the show twice. Um, he seems to be having a grand time. Uh, he also... Uh, gives a pony, a Missouri pony, uh, to the 11-year-old son of the uh, president of the Fenian Brotherhood, William Roberts. Um, and he's invited uh, by the editor of the Amer Irish American newspaper, which is the pro-invasion newspaper in New York. He's invited uh, to a special meeting with them. And he is presented with a Fenian uniform in uh, recognition of his great services to the cause. Uh, and then he's featured in an article in the Irish American newspaper as a model Fenian. And then the story takes a twist because it turns out Cornelius Sullivan does not exist. His real name is Charles Clark. He is Canada's, quote, best detective, unquote. That's from the chief of the secret police, Gilbert McMicken. Uh, the pony did not come from Missouri. It, it came from Canada. Uh, uh, the money he was given to buy Fenian bonds to finance the Fenian Brotherhood's uh, arms program came from Canada. Uh, and all of this was with the goal of getting to the top of the organization. But uh, when he was hobnobbing with uh, other Fenians and going to the show and drinking in bars with them, he was actually terrified that his cover would be blown because he knew that a leading New York Fenian had gone northwards, uh, gone toward, had gone to Canada. And if that Fenian went to Toronto, where Charles Clark's true identity was known, um, if he got a description of Charles Clark, uh, Charles Clark's goose would have been cooked, as he put it himself. So when Charles Clark goes, as Cornelius Sullivan, to this meeting at the Irish-American newspaper offices, he fears he is walking into his own execution because he's been rumbled. And in fact, he manages to, to carry off this remarkable intelligence coup. So that's where the book begins. And then it moves outwards from there uh, to, uh, to locate uh, the activities of Charles Clark and the Canadian secret police within broader uh, counterintelligence activities on the part of the British, Irish, and Canadian governments. So that's yeah. how it starts. Yeah, yeah, no, it's good. It, it, it kind of has the feel of a, you know, one of those uh, mafia films about someone infiltrating the mafia in the meeting. You're not sure if uh, exactly what's going to happen to this, this, uh, this infiltrator. 
Um, now we've, it's funny, we've covered the season, a bunch of information about the Fenians, although, and it, it, it pretty much fits your characterization of what, what it, what is typically covered, you know, the, the co- contribution of the Fenians towards the Confederation story, the battle of Ridgeway. Um, but I wonder if you, what you could add. So my, my listeners will know a little bit about the Fenians. They might know even a lot more than they got from the show, but can, maybe you could explain a little bit more about why the Fenians, who they were and why they were so fixated on, or at least some of them were on British North America. Yeah. Um, they weren't initially, uh, fixated on British North America. In fact, Canada didn't enter the picture at all when the Fenian Brotherhood was founded. Um, I mean, it wasn't even called the Fenian Brotherhood when it was founded. It was given no name at all. It was so secret. Uh, But it was founded in Dublin uh, on St. Patrick's Day, 1858. And the the objective uh, was to organize a revolutionary secret society in Ireland, modeled on secret societies in Italy, you know, uh, Mazzini, for example, um, and um, and also in France, uh, so uh, modeled on on uh, continental examples, but also drawing on Irish uh, agrarian secret society traditions. And so the idea was to uh, get American money. This was done in conjunction with uh, uh, Irish revolutionaries in the United States to get American money to buy arms, to organize this uh, this revolutionary underground movement in Ireland, and then to wait until Britain was involved in war. And the, the, the old adage of Irish revolutionaries was England's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity. Uh, once England or Britain, they used the words interchangeably, uh, was embroiled in war, and they assumed with France, uh, then uh, this would open up the space for the secret society in Ireland to launch its revolution. So that was the idea, and uh, uh, by um, by the m- middle of the uh, of the next decade, by the sort of eighteen sixty three sixty four period, it had become clear that this war that they hoped Britain would become involved in certainly wasn't going to involve France. Um, uh, France had let them down terribly, if you like. Uh, so they were looking for alternatives. And at the same time, uh, in uh, 1865 now, which was uh, touted by the leader of the um, Irish Republican Brotherhood, as it was known in Ireland, James Stevens, it was touted as the year of revolution. I guarantee there'll be a revolution by the end of 1865. This was to, this was to keep up morale, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in September of 1865, the British and Irish authorities cracked down on the movement, arrested the leaders, closed down its newspaper, um, and it became very clear to the uh, Fenian Brotherhood, as it was called in the United States, that the prospects both of, a, of war with France, Britain going to war with France and the prospects of uh, the uh, Irish revolutionary movement uh, being able to launch a rising uh, had diminished significantly, to put it mildly. Um, so they were looking for alternatives. And of course, this is at the, uh, at the very time that the Civil War has ended. And tens of thousands of Irish men had fought in the Civil War. So they had military training. Uh, so this was a very important factor. And mo- many, probably most of those men, uh, emigrated uh during the famine period and uh, as such 
had bitter memories of what happened to Ireland during the famine and the evictions that took place. Um, and uh, one can argue back and forth as to uh, the degree of Britain's culpability uh, during the famine. Um, in a sense, that argument is immaterial to what we're seeing here because many of these Irish migrants uh, believed that uh, Britain had caused the famine and Britain was responsible for the famine and they wanted revenge. So they had military training. They had There were large numbers of them. Um, they wanted revenge against Britain. They couldn't get across the Atlantic easily. They did in small numbers, but they couldn't get across in large numbers. In any case, there wasn't much of a revolutionary organization left for them to join. But Canada offered a tempting target. It seemed like a sitting duck. If you can't hit the British Empire at its heart, let's hit it um, uh, in its most vulnerable place, which is Canada. And so one wing, the Fenians split on this. One wing wants to continue the focus on Ireland, but the other wing wants to focus on Canada. And, uh, and the idea is that uh, they operate, they had several assumptions. One is if we get the approval of the American government, we might actually be able to, to invade Canada without them interfering. And this would trigger a crisis in Anglo-American relations, which were already at rock bottom because of Britain's tacit support for the Confederacy during the Civil War. This could actually trigger the war that would mean England's difficulty begins and Ireland's opportunity can commence because if we can take and hold parts of Canada for a while, the folks back home, the Irish nationalists back home will be inspired by this at the very time that British troops will be needed to cross the Atlantic to defend Canada from a Fenian invasion. So you would open up the space for an Irish revolution. So this was, this was the thinking. And they also believed, uh, first of all, they believed that they had the tacit support of the American government. Uh, in November of 1865, their leaders uh, met with uh, William Seward, the Secretary of State, and President Johnson, and reported, whether this is accurate or not, I do not know, but they reported that Seward had said that the American government would, quote, uh, acknowledge accomplished facts, unquote. In other words, it seemed, you go ahead and invade, and if you're successful, we will recognize that. Can, so, can I interrupt you there? I'm, I'm curious. Well, I, 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 that's obviously such a key line, and I, you, you, you're just not sure if that's right or not, because it seems like, obviously, in the end, that's not what the Americans do at all, is it? No, I think what's going on here is that the uh, uh, the Fenians are trying to manipulate the Americans into a position where they will be at war with Britain, and um, and we do actually have a pretty good sense of what Seward was about. William Seward, the Secretary of State, was about uh, because we know from other sources that he'd already met uh, the British Minister um, Frederick Bruce in the United States, and they'd they'd um, they'd made an informal agreement. Uh, that Britain would not criticize the American government for its silence or inaction about the Fenian Brotherhood, uh, and the American government uh, promised that it would nip an invasion in the bud, and, and should one get through, they would stop further reinforcements from coming in. Um, and I think what's, uh, it's entirely possible that Seward did say to the Fenian leaders that he would acknowledge accomplished facts. He never put anything in writing, 
Um, and actually, uh, to take this a little further, uh, when he was asked to put something in writing, he refused. And it was at that point that the Fenian Brotherhood began to split on the question of an invasion, because if you don't have the support of the American government, or if you're not certain you have it, this could be a disaster. Uh, so uh, that's part of the factors in the split. But I think what Seward was about, actually, was um, to try and keep the Fenians on board so there wouldn't be widespread defections mm. uh, from from his government. Uh, I think the an eye to keeping uh, the... Uh, the, the government in power was central to what he was doing here. But it's a very interesting question you raise because uh, you've got two sides, each of which is trying to use the other. And it's the Americans who win that game. Yeah. And, and interestingly, of course, I mean, ultimately, the bo- both sides, both sides, dis- dis- the side that didn't support attacking Canada end up sort of planning an attack in New Brunswick, which then didn't go through. But um, before getting onto that, I wonder... Um, I was thinking about your take on the Fenians in general. Of course, you you kind of make a point of uh, countering. I think I think you accurately say is the way in which the Fenians have been treated in kind of you know among by historians. I, the, the lines from your book are they've been treated as either a, a bit player in a historical farce or a fleeting aberration in the longer story of Irish Catholic assimil- assimilation. So you're you know you're making the case that um, the Fenians were a threat and more of a threat than they've been been presented. Um, certainly by 1865, sorry, late 1865, the Canadian government thinks they're a threat, so much so that they, um, you know, they set the the, the, the newly created uh, secret police to try, try and infiltrate the Fenians. I wonder if we could pivot now and you can tell us a little bit about um, uh, the, the spy service and how effective initially it was in, in infiltrating the Fenians. Certainly. Just, but before pivoting, I'd just like to say a, a, a couple of words about the threat. Sure. Because um, it, was, it was not um, a sufficient threat to uh, overthrow uh, the, the Canadian government or to smash the British Empire um, in North America. Um, and I think the government realized that. Uh, but it, but um, it could have done... Uh, and a significant amount, amount of damage, and did, and it did some. I mean, uh, at the Battle of Ridgeway, uh, so it was taken very seriously, and and this is this is where the secret police uh, come in. Uh, I mean, this, the the you're right. The the Fenians have been regarded as a bunch of I think Donald Creighton's words were uh, grandiloquent clowns and vainglorious incompetence. And some of them were, but 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 they need to be taken seriously, and, and this was one of the most, uh, as indeed the secret police did, and, and as, as indeed the Canadian government did, and as indeed I think Canadian historians must do, and and uh, haven't always uh, done so. And one of the challenges you faced, or I faced, in writing this book is that personally. I'm not very sympathetic to the Fenians. I'm not sympathetic to Irish revolutionary nationalism uh, or uh, Irish loyalist uh, 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 Irish loyalism either. I try and steer a middle course, but empathy is really important here. You know, try to understand what the Fenians are about, taking them seriously, uh, empathizing with the uh, emotional force of, of the Brotherhood rather than dismissing them in the way they've been dismissed 
in the past. So I try to think my think my way into the Fenian mind and and to uh, recognize it on its own terms and present it in a way that, you know, if you're sitting across the table in a pub with a Fenian circa 1867, this is what you'd hear. And this is where it would, this is, and this, these are the places it would come from. So anyway, um, the, the secret the service, yeah. yeah, the secret police uh, uh, were formed actually not initially uh, to deal with the threat such as it was from the South, uh, but to de- deal with uh, a different kind of threat. Uh, it was formed uh, in the winter of 1864-65 uh, after Southern Confederates uh, had used Canada as a base to attack the North in the uh, St. Albans raid in Vermont in September of 1864. Uh, now, the American government threatened to in- to close down the border and introduce the passport system. Uh, Canada had to demonstrate that it was taking this very seriously. It was taking measures to stop Confederates from attacking the states from Canada. And and then after the Civil War ended, its raison d'etre also ended, and the force was being wound down in the summer of 65. But then the word comes in, that one wing of the Fenians, or what some elements within the Fenian Brotherhood, uh, are thinking about invading Canada. And once that occurs, uh, once that realization dawns, the, the secret police force is reactivated. Some of the people who've been laid off uh, are brought back in. Uh, those who had proved themselves inadequate or incompetent, and that was quite a few, in fact, uh, were kept out. And you needed now a different kind of secret policeman. You needed a secret policeman who uh, would be comfortable in Irish Catholic culture, uh, and indeed with the Irish with the Irish Catholic religious culture as well. Uh, you'd, you'd need someone who could pass themselves off uh, as a Fenian supporter or sympathizer who could actually join the Fenian Brotherhood uh, and get a sense of what was going on inside the circles, as they were called, or the cells, if you like. So, uh, and such people were very hard to find. Uh, There was a considerable level of distrust about uh, Irish Catholics in Canada because there was always the possibility that... um, an Irish Catholic who joined the secret police force could act as a double agent. So there was this sort of distrust and suspicion. Um, very hard to find the right kind of people. And actually the number of, um, of secret policemen becomes much smaller. And uh, the secret police force d- deals much more with uh, quality rather than quantity. Hmm. But they face immense problems, not only in securing the right personnel from their perspective, um, but also uh, getting to the top of the Fenian Brotherhood. So they find, some, they find some people who suit their requirements. And one is the person you mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast, and that is Charles Clark. I mean, in some ways, uh, he's perfect for the secret police. In other ways, he's a thoroughly disreputable person. I mean, he, um, he uh, well, we can come to that in, in a while, but, uh, or straight away, in fact, because he's fired from the Toronto Police Force. Um, in 1864, 
uh, for, uh, as he himself put it, uh, a malicious charge of a lewd woman, open brackets, for having improper connection with her, unquote. So clearly something was going on. He was fired from the police force, but recommended by the same person who fired him for the seek to the secret police force because he was Irish. He was a Catholic who had converted to Protestantism. He spoke Irish. He spoke the Irish language, which was used as a kind of secret code by Fenians to shut out informers uh, from outside. Um, he knew his way around uh, uh, Catholic church services. Uh, he knew the culture from the inside. He was reliable. And they found uh, a couple of others who uh, didn't fit the bill quite as well. But they still faced enormous problems because uh, they could go to places like Pittsburgh or Detroit or Chicago or New York or Philadelphia, and they'd, and they'd, they'd go to the Irish bars. Um, they would hang around trying to befriend people, um, but they were outsiders, you know, um, and hence objects of suspicion. And uh, even those few, like Charles Clark, who managed to get himself inducted into a Fenian circle, even those people weren't getting anything um, more than the sort of morale-boosting propaganda coming from head office. And so they couldn't, they couldn't get anything about actual plans. They couldn't get anything about actual dates. Irish independence and liberty is all you can get out of them, said one frustrated secret policeman. Uh, so this was a huge issue that they, that they faced. Um, and this is a major reason why they were taken by surprise uh, when the Fenians did attack uh, at Ridgeway in, uh, in June of 1866. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I mean, uh, the, the Clark, Charles Clark, obviously, he, the, the problems with, with women and certainly his treatment of, of women and other things were there. I mean, I, I, you've got this great line in the book, which I just love that it's, it's, it's in print in a university press book as your chapter begins it was Charles Clark's penis that did it, yes. uh, which is which is great. And I wonder what maybe you could explain briefly what uh, what, you, what what did Charles Clark's penis do? In, in, at least explain it in, in a family friendly way. That's a question I didn't expect to to get. What did Charles Clark's penis do? Let's not go there too closely. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a sentence actually that the uh, the editors wanted out of the book, not because of uh, of. of the family-friendly question, but because it's not actually grammatical. Uh, so I thought, well, in fact, my DCB editors also said, you can't have that sentence in there. It's not a grammatical sentence. It offends the, the rules of syntax. And my response to this was a very intellectual, too bad, it stays. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and yeah, it's, it's uh, basically the story of Charles Clark's downfall because eventually, as Cornelius O'Sullivan, as we've seen, he does in 1867, infiltrate the Fenian Brotherhood right to the very top. And he goes to mass every Sunday with Mrs. Roberts, uh, William Roberts, President William Roberts's wife. Uh, William Roberts is in France at the time. Uh, every Sunday, he's, uh, he's having mass with uh, Mrs. Roberts and going out for dinner uh, with her afterwards. And um, uh, he's right in there. Uh, and uh, he's exactly what the Canadian secret police didn't have before the Battle of Ridgeway and exactly what they've been aiming for. And then it all comes crashing down because of his uh, betrayal of women. He, he not only betrayed 
the people with whom he was working as Cornelius O'Sullivan. He betrayed, in fact, he betrayed some of his own fellow secret policemen as well, uh, shopping them to uh, Gilbert McMicken, the chief of police in Canada West or Ontario. Uh, but he, he seems to have been, an, well, he doesn't seem to be, he was also an adept at betraying women who befriended him. And there's some evidence that he'd uh, done this in Detroit and Pittsburgh, uh, but clear evidence in New York, because um, his niece was, uh, was living in New York uh, at the time that Charles Clark, a.k.a. Cornelius O'Sullivan, was operating there. And she knew about his double identity, uh, but she had sworn to keep it secret. Meanwhile, um, his niece, his, Charles Clark, had, a, had an affair with his niece's friend, uh, a woman by the name, and I'm not making this up, of Miss Clapp. That's <laughs> all we know about her. Her name is Miss Clapp. And uh, we know she's in her early 30s and was described by Gilbert McMicken, the chief of police, as a designing woman, blaming the woman here, blaming the victim, which is also disturbing. Uh, anyway, uh, it's pretty clear, reading between very large lines, that Charles Clark had promised Miss Clapp marriage, uh, may well have got her pregnant. Uh, told her he was returning to Missouri. She knew him as Cornelius O'Sullivan. He was returning to Missouri and he would come back to her. Uh, and uh, of course, he never came back. And so she, when Miss Clapp went to Clark's niece, said what had happened, um, his niece was steaming about what her uncle had done, uh, gave the niece his his actual name, not saying he was in the police force, but saying he, he lived in Windsor. His name was Charles Clark. She, the, Miss Clapp, wrote to the postmaster um, in Windsor and, and inquired, do you know anything about a man named Charles Clark? I'm trying to get in touch with him. It's urgent. And we Actually, this letter is extant. You can see this. And, um, and uh, the postmaster um, did something extraordinary. Uh, he wrote back and said, oh, yeah, Charles Clark, he's a member of the secret police force here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, believe me, Gilbert McMicken and John A. MacDonald were not amused by that. That's top, uh, t -t -t top notch uh, spy service there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, everything came crashing down. And uh, Miss Clapp, in, in a rage, stormed into the Fenian headquarters at 706 Broadway in New York. And said, you know, this man, Cornelius O'Sullivan, uh, is, he's actually a secret policeman. His name is Charles Clark. And fortunately for him, he was in Canada uh, when the story broke. But then he'd also inducted other Canadian secret policemen into the force himself. So now they were under suspicion. And one of them was attending a Fenian Congress. And he had no idea any of this had gone down. And he was trying to get in with the leadership by saying, oh, Charles Clark, he's a real, sorry, Cornelius O'Sullivan, he's a really close friend of mine. You know, I've known him for years. So they ran him out of town uh, and he, came, he, he escaped within an inch of his life. The other one, another one by the name of, um, of William Montgomery, who went under the name of William McMichael as a spy, um, he, he just played it cool. He stayed in New York and with remarkable sang-froid, he just said, you know, that bastard, that bastard, he fooled me just as he fooled you. You can't trust anybody. And they were threatening him. You know, he was he was being told things like someone's going to get a whiff of cordite um, at the back of their neck when they least expect it. And he and he just 
stayed on. And uh, and actually, for a long while, he was shut out of anything to do with um, the operations of the Fenian Brotherhood. But after a year, they came to the conclusion that actually, uh, you know, he was he had been fooled by Charles Clark. And if you look at the uh, at the cover of the book, Chris, you'll see it's of a, a young Fenian lad, a bold Fenian lad carrying the Fenian flag into Canada. Mm. Um, and uh, why I wanted that picture and the, that image uh, from the 1866 lithograph as the cover of the book is that in 1868, at a Fenian parade in Philadelphia, William McMichael, the same person, uh, was the man who was designated to carry that flag at the head of a Fenian parade, William McMichael actually being William Montgomery inducted into the secret police by uh, Charles Clark and getting away with it. So it's a remarkable story, I think. And that's just the half of it. I mean, we haven't even got into to that chain-smoking faux Frenchman, Henri Le Caron, who carried on as the next best detective after Charles Clark's downfall. Uh, but it's, it's an amazing story. And yeah. this is also part of the, uh, the challenge I faced in writing this book, because um, uh, in the course of it, I became seduced by the story. Uh, I became seduced by the, by the amazing characters I was encounter, encountering and all the surprises that I encountered along the way. Um, but, it's, but the title, in some ways, is misleading because... History gets back to the whole question of how, how you write history. History, in my view, is not a story. It can take the form of a narrative, but it is not, per se, a story. It is an inquiry. And the inquiry depends on the questions you ask. And so the questions I've asked are, what were the Fenians actually about? How seriously should we take them? How much did the Canadian government know? Uh, why did John A. Macdonald play down the uh, Fenian threat so much as play it down he did? Um, uh, what, what were the long-term consequences of the Fenian uh, Brotherhood? What does this tell us? And this is the overarching question that really got me into this. What does this tell us about the relationship between state security and civil liberty? Here we have a case study uh, from the 1860s what relevance might this have for us today? Yeah, you, you make a, I draw a bunch of parallels throughout the, well, especially towards the end of the book about the, you know, the, the, the stories you're telling here, there's just so many echoes of these kinds of issues in, uh, you know, uh, treatment of, of, of suspected spies in, in the Great Wars, um, in, you know, the, the, the War Measures Act and the FLQ, the War on Terror. There's just such a, the dealing with communists in the 1940s and 50s and 60s and the Cold War. Um, you, but it's interesting, you, you make a case that Johnny McDonald comes off pretty well in this, in trying to find a balance between, you know, the needs to, need on the one hand to protect the civil liberties of, of, of people who are living in Canada, but on the other hand, the need to to prevent, um, you know, attacks and, uh, in the case of the Fenians, actual military attacks on the country. Yeah, this is something else that surprised me. Um, I mean, I didn't know what to expect, really, with MacDonald. Uh, but um, uh, it became increasingly apparent to me as I was doing the research that he was a significant force for moderation, uh, partly for principled reasons and partly for pragmatic reasons. Um, and, you know, whereas someone like Darcy McGee, after a, an initial period of, uh, of strategic denial, uh, began to uh, talk a lot about uh, the Fenian threat within Canada, um, 
John A. Macdonald, who in many senses was a shrewder politician than McGee, uh, John A. Macdonald uh, deliberately played it down. Now, at one level, you could say, yes, civil liberties were infringed, and indeed they were. I mean, habeas corpus was suspended three times between 1866 and 1870. Um, and each time MacDonald framed uh, the suspension of habeas corpus, not within terms of an internal threat, but in terms of an external one. That was conscious and deliberate uh, because he didn't want to draw any attention to the internal threat uh, because he feared that it would uh, it could provoke an orange Protestant backlash. Uh, and once you get that, once you get a serious, uh, uh, an escalating sort of conflict between Catholics and Protestants over questions of loyalty, you're in danger of reproducing in Canada some of the ethno-religious conflict that you had in Ireland. He wanted to avoid that. Um, and uh, one of the, one of the uh, I mean, I was actually inferring this from uh, from the various ways in which MacDonald approached the Fenian Brotherhood. So, you know, he um, uh, when, his, when habeas corpus was suspended the first time in June of 1866, he sent a circular to magistrates saying, um, under no circumstances must you arrest anyone under suspension of habeas corpus without clearing it with, with me first, micromanaging this because he knew a lot of uh, Protestant magistrates, nervous Protestant magistrates, um, could well regard every Catholic in their district as a potential or actual Fenian. So he was, he was uh, very conscious of the need for restraint. Um, he also refused to allow anyone to uh, arrest Fenian people on suspicion of being Fenians, even if they, even actually, if, if, uh, the secret policemen had good evidence that they were Fenians. These people were not to be arrested. They were to be watched, but not arrested, for the most part. It was only after Darcy McGee's assassination that you get uh, a series of arrests, all controlled uh, from, or mostly controlled from the centre. Uh, you get arrests of about 25 to 30 people uh, uh, who were involved, who were either believed to be involved in the assassination uh, or uh, were supporters of the Fenian Brotherhood within Canada, prominent supporters of the Fenian Brotherhood, or believed to be. Yeah. But, but I mean, just on MacDonald, um, this, is, this is something I found, I was inferring all this from, from his actions, and then, and then I was able to sort of actually pin it down from a letter he wrote uh, to Michael Hayes, um, who was in Stratford. And this is from uh, May of 1868. And it's in, it's in one of those... Oh, it's in one of those McDonald's letters that anyone who's been through the papers would be would have a hard time reading. Uh, uh, on micro on on microfilm, you couldn't do it. Uh, it's just I tried. You couldn't do it, but digitized, you can. And there's there are hundreds of letters like this, and most of them yielded no results at all except a headache. But but every so often you'd strike gold. It's like intermittent reinforcement, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and this this is what McDonald said in May, or wrote in May of 1868, the Fenian organization has gone to a very large and dangerous extent in Canada, although I said as little about it as possible. And then he goes on to say, there is no intention of arresting people on suspicion. On the contrary, I endeavor as much as possible to keep matters quiet. So, in part, 
this was a matter of principle um, in part, and, and he, MacDonald was quite clear about this, that the suspension, suspension of habeas corpus and in, uh, on occasions the opening of mail as well, which occurred, were temporary expedients. Uh, they were to be done under uh, his control uh, as much as possible. Uh, uh, when he heard that other people were, uh, other magistrates were making arrests, he clamped down on them immediately. So uh, there was caution here uh, 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 and principle together, but the pragmatism of it was you do not want a replication of Irish ethno-religious violence in Canada, and also you don't want a stream of Irish Catholic refugees going down to the United States where they will just reinforce the Fenian Brotherhood and increase the likelihood of another raid. Um, and I think, I think you know, when we compare uh, the uh, the treatment of Fenian prisoners to the treatment of Métis uh, after the uh, rising of 1885. Um, uh, we, we can see to a significant extent uh, the degree to which pragmatism was a factor here. I mean, mm-hmm. there, are, there are many Fenian prisoners after Ridgeway, um, and the, uh, the British colonial office is sending telegrams, do not, do, basically, do not execute these people, you know, uh, do not do it. Uh, it, will, it will destroy Anglo-American relations and increase the, the, uh, uh, the, the uh, likelihood of more raids. And that's one reason why the trials were put off until the autumn, uh, so that uh, passions could uh, could abate somewhat. And yes, uh, some were sentenced to death, but uh, the, the sentences were very quickly commuted to imprisonment. Uh, so there would be no Fenian martyrs. Um, yeah. uh, and and that and the, you know the the British uh, government played a significant role in that. I think I think Macdonald was shrewd enough anyway to have. Uh, taking the same stance, but they are. Yeah, and the contrast with uh, with in the, the Métis in the 1880s is it's a, it's an interesting one. We're, we're going to get to that next season on on the on the podcast when we turn when we turn westward because obviously it's a very different kind of thing. Uh, I, I want to say there are so many stories we're not getting to. Uh, Le Caron is the is another great figure, uh, another great spy with with many aliases, which is worth getting, getting uh, worth buying your book for. I wanted to end with one uh, maybe different kind of question, which is more of a kind of a, a methods, a kind of geeky question. Uh, uh, but I'm hoping you'll appreciate this, which is that, you know, obviously central to your story is McDonald and, and you know, amazingly Windsor, uh, Canada, Canada West as this, this hot, hot center of, of, of uh, Canadian spy service. I mean, how much of this is just a, a, a factor about which sources survive? I mean, because of course, Georges Etienne Cartier, as you say, had this other Canada East type spy network and the records, you know, Cartier's records are almost entirely lost to us. That's why there's no great uh, Georges Etienne Cartier biography. Uh, you know, there's been attempts, but nothing like what you can get about McDonald because the papers just aren't there. And I guess that's the same with the the, the papers relating to the, the Canada East spy network, is it? It's a great question. And absolutely, it's one of the great sources of frustration. On the one hand, um, I was stunned by the uh, by the number of uh, sources that we have on the secret police. I mean, we have some three thousand letters in McDonald's papers, uh, from detectives in the field to their handlers to McDonald's and back down the chain. So we should be grateful for that. But the frustrating part is that yeah, the epicenter of uh, of our information about uh, the secret police is indeed uh, 
Canada West, Ontario. But the epicenter of Fenian activities in Canada was actually Canada East. It was, you know, it was uh, uh, Montreal and Quebec City. Uh, these were the these were sort of hotbeds of uh, uh, of Fenianism. Uh, uh, Ottawa was as well, but uh, Ottawa. Gilbert McMicken's men didn't operate in Ottawa, so there are there are large gaps in what we know. Uh, fortunately, there's enough overspill from uh, from detectives who operated under Cartier, uh, whose letters wound up in the Macdonald papers. There's enough overspill for us to get some idea um, of what was going on in Quebec, but there is so much that's been lost, particularly. And this is the most frustrating thing, particularly about who who the uh, informers were within the Fenian Brotherhood, because the Fenian Brotherhood uh, becomes uh, uh, riddled with informers. How valuable they are is another question. I mean, a lot of them were just retailing uh, gossip and rumors, uh, but you get a really good sense of this. You know, there's one individual, Francis Bernard McNamee, uh, who could have been a triple agent. Um, and, and I'd love to know. I'd just love to know. And when Cartier's papers went up in flames, all that historical knowledge went up in flames with them. It's, uh, it's, we should be grateful for what we have, but it's a minor tragedy that we don't have material we could have been able to access. Yeah, perhaps... Perhaps more than a minor tragedy, but maybe I'm <laughs> being too dramatic as, about as it. As tragedies go, yeah, as tragedies go, it's true. One one can imagine uh, slightly worse worse things. Uh, well, listen, uh, David Wilson, I want to thank you so much for being uh, uh, for being uh, the first guest on this new uh, uh, the new interview portions of 1867 and all that. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Well, uh, I can't highly uh, recommend uh, David Wilson's new book, Can't Spy Story Enough. Uh, uh, if you can get your hands on it, I'm, which I'm sure you can at all good places to buy books, uh, please do so, because we only touched on a tiny portion of the stories and the fascinating stuff that's in that book. Um, now, although we're finished with this particular discussion, I'm pleased to say that we're not, we're not done yet. We're going to have another interview episode coming up quite soon. And the guest is none other than uh, the man who's with us today, David Wilson. Um, now, I wanted to double book him because I wanted to revisit kind of the magnificent biography of Thomas Darcy McGee and to deal with one of the most dramatic episodes of Canadian history and one that we didn't retell this season because it happens in 1868. And that is the assassination of, of McGee on an Ottawa street in 1868. So, Keep your eyes on your podcast feed for that. And until next time, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that. <laughs>